Hello and welcome to A History of Electronic Music Part 4. My name is Paul Sheiky, and today I'm going to be talking about what I'm going to call tape music. It has been, it can be known as various things like music concrete, uh, found sound, etc. But I'm going to call it tape music. Uh, I'm also going to talk about some of the other early studios, which uh, used electronics as well, but they often used electronics in conjunction with tapes. Um, and really, this is the first real electronic music, because before we've seen instruments integrated within whatever musical forms existed at the time, but this is really original new electronic music and electronic music forging for itself some a completely new different sound. Um, I mentioned back in part one that there was great interest in opening up the musical sphere to various different sounds and sounds not necessarily associated with with musical compositions. For instance, in Italy, it was the Futurists who had their noise boxes, which were basically boxes with horns and sirens and shakers on, etc. And they were led by Luigi Rosolo. There was Ottorino Respigi, used a recording of nightingales in his Pines of Rome. Eric Satie used various things like typewriters and gunshots in his work Parade. And George Antheil, uh, perhaps the loudest, used an airplane engine on stage as part of his ballet mechanique. But two names really stand out in the early 20th century that pioneered a progression from traditional music forms. And these were Edgard Varese and John Cage. Um, I'll talk about Varese first. Varese was um, a friend and pupil of Ferruccino Busoni, who wrote the 1907 article Sketch for a New Aesthetic of Music, in which he calls for an expansion of the musical forms and sounds beyond the established musical order. And apparently Varese said that Bassoni pretty much predicted everything that was going to happen in 20th century music, especially the, the type of music I'm talking about today. And Varese himself used various different noises in his, his music. He used sirens on stage and he, he wrote a piece called Equatorial for the Theremin, which if I'd have known at the time I would have played you in part two, but never mind, I know it now. And in fact he led a call for new instruments and in 1932, he applied to the Guggenheim Foundation for a grant to develop a new instrument. Unfortunately, he was turned down. Also in the early 30s, John Cage was starting to think about making music. He'd not fully decided what he was going to do with his life by then, because he was only in his early 20s, whereas Ferrazzi was in his 50s by this point. Um, but he started to get interested in 
Marcel Duchamp and his ready-made idea and the fact that possibly sound could be ready-made and music could be ready-made in the, the environment around us. And in 1937, he said this, Wherever we are, what we hear is mostly noise. When we ignore it, it disturbs us. When we listen to it, we find it fascinating. The sound of a truck at 50 miles per hour, static between the stations, rain. We want to capture and control these sounds, to use them not as sound effects, but as musical instruments. If this word music is sacred and reserved for 18th and 19th century instruments, we can substitute a more meaningful term, organisation of sound. And he started experimenting in the late 30s with actually putting these ideas into practice. And in his imaginary landscape number one from 1939, he used muted piano, cymbals, and two very speed phonographs playing test tones. However, it wasn't John Cage or Varese who came up with the first composition made completely of found sound. That is, sound are ex existing in the world. It was Pierre Schaeffer who started an experimental studio at Radio Diffusion Francaise um, as early as during the war in 1942 he was experimenting. After the war it expanded, obviously the Germans had gone and he could, he could carry on working on it. And the first work that was completely composed in this way was Etude au Chemin de Fer, which literally means railroad study, which was recorded, um, which is a recording of trains at Batignol Station. And I'll play it for you now. This is Pierre Schaeffer and Etude au Chemin de Fer from 1948. <laughs>
Etude au Chemin de Fer, their railway study from 1948 by Pierre Schaeffer, and made it in his Radio Diffusion Francaise studio. It was Pierre Schaeffer who coined the phrase musique concrète, and I'll read to you what, what he meant by it. This determination to compose with materials taken from an existing collection of experimental sounds, I name, I name musique concrète, to mark well the place in which we find ourselves, no longer dependent upon preconceived sound abstractions, but now using fragments of sound existing concretely and considered as sound objects defined and whole. And it was interesting how that track was made because it was before tape recorders were widely available. And it was made by four phonographs playing into a mixer, which output to a lathe that was recutting the disc. And you, it was made by manipulating the discs live and through the mixer. So it's perhaps like a, a precursor to DJing also. So Pierre Schaeffer, a very influential guy. In the late 40s, in his studio, he was joined by Pierre Henry. And Henry joined. Henry became more of the musician and Schaeffer more the theorist. One of Henry's major early works was Symphony pour un homme seul, which is Symphony for One Man Alone. Again, again, apologies for my pronunciation. But it was something created in 22 parts. I've only managed to get hold of a very short extract from it. Um, this is from part of it called Scherzo, but you, it gives you an idea of what was going on in early music concrete. So it was a time of great experimentation and people were just really just trying things out, playing records backwards and just mixing things together in ways that had not been done before. One of the big changes early on was the proliferation of the tape recorder. And it's worth going into a little bit of the history of the tape recorder. The idea for the tape recorder was there in the 1880s, but the technology wasn't there to actually create it, really. In the early 20th century, music was recorded onto metal wire or a metal strip. And apparently the BBC had a very early metal strip recorder in their Maidervale studios. And these had large 22-pound steel drums spinning at high speed. So it was actually highly dangerous and you had a risk of decapitation if you were actually in the room when one of them snapped. And edits were done by welding, so it was hardly the easiest uh, medium to manipulate. In the 1930s, Fritz Flumer registered a patent for an idea for a tape recorder, and he managed to persuade IG Farman and AEG to develop machines with plastic tape coated in magnetic powder. Initially, it created clouds of dust as it ran through the machine but the principle was there and it still worked. The technology improved quite a lot, lot during the war and there's quite an interesting story of what happened just after the war. As the Allies came across the AEG factory they found enough parts to build 18 tape recorders so they decided to split them up, six to the French, six to the British and six to the US. And it sort of spread from there so it all came from Germany initially but in 1946, the Magnacord and the Ranger Tone and Ampex were formed, and tape recorders became more widely available. And this was great news for John Cage, who could now really explore his ideas a lot further than he could before. And this led to a creation of a, a very 
famous early piece of his, which is the Williams Mix, which is named after the friend of theirs, Paul Williams, who financed it. It was engineered by Lewis and B. Barron, who I mentioned mistakenly in part two because I didn't think there was any other music like theirs, but there is. And so, sorry about that again. They recorded and catalogued about 600 different sounds, um, but money ran out halfway through the process, so they did as much recording as they could while they could. But when they were splicing the, the tapes together to create a composition like Pierre Schaeffer's, they, they couldn't actually play back the tape and they couldn't listen to it. But this doesn't really bother John Cage because he's very much about um, randomness and just the, the soundscape itself is, is the music. And he developed a method using the I Ching where he'd create a table of all the sounds that he had and a method of randomly selecting the sounds, how long it would be on the attack time, decay time, and just put, put this all together randomly. So he didn't actually get to hear it until it was finally finished. And it took about a year to do. It took a long, long time to create this, even though it's only about five minutes long. But you can hear it now. This is um, the Williams mix by John Cage, and it's from 1952. Thank <laughs> you. 
John Cage's Williams mix, and that was recorded at a live concert, and that's what the background noise was, because I think initially it was supposed to be played on four separate channels and four speakers around the audience, so you can't get the full experience of it just listening to a stereo recording. Um, I say it's by John Cage, but I must give credit to also to Earl Brown, who did a lot of the splicing. And obviously you heard quite a few electronic sounds in there, no doubt created by the Barons using their cybernetic circuitry, as mentioned in part two. These became increasingly common throughout the studios that sprung up around the time, and there were a lot of studios appearing. Um, for instance, in, in Cologne, in Germany, there's a studio um, installed at the Westdeutsche Rundfunk, and it was amazing these um, institutions actually funded um, experimental electronic music research. Um, I really wish they'd do that now, but there's really no need to now, I guess. The people in the Cologne studio are very much interested in the idea of serialism, which was a prevailing idea within avant-garde classical music at the time. Um, I'll read you a bit about what serialism was. This is from Electric Sound by Joel Chatterby. For them, serialism was a compositional technique where in every aspect of a composition, not only notes, but also loudness, timbre, duration, type of attack, and every other imaginable parameter of a sound, could be based on and derived from the same row or series, thereby producing a kind of total structure wherein every detail was organised. And it was tape recorders that really allowed them to, to do this, and electronics also. Um, the next piece I'm going to play is from the Cologne studio, and this is from 1952, and it uses electronics, and it does remind me um, quite a bit of the, the Baron stuff that from... Forbidden Planet that I played in part two. I would have, would have played some more here, but I haven't really got time. Um, this is by Herbert Imart, and this is Clang Study number two. Thank <laughs> you. 
study number two there by Herbert Imart, made using circuits that he'd built himself no doubt because there wasn't that many um, true synthesizers available at the time. Around about this time, the early 50s in the US, there was also the beginnings of a studio and it was a studio started by Otto Luning and Vladimir Uzachevsky who met at an early concert of Luning's work. And amongst that work was uh, this piece, which is low speed, which is based on the, the sound of a flute as played by Otto. An extract from Otto Luning's Low Speed from 1952. Some of that very much reminded me of an Aphex twin track from 
Selected Ambient Works Part 2. I'm sure you know the one I mean if you're into electronica. In a similar vein to that, in Canada, there's a guy called Hugh Lacane who invented the electronic sackbut, which really was designed as a performance synthesizer because Hugh correctly identified that a lot of the performance in an instrument is the, the unwanted noise that gives it its live feel to a large extent. So he invented a synthesizer that could have extraneous noise to it that wasn't necessarily just the, the sound that you're creating. So quite very pioneering in that way because that's what a lot of synthesizers these days are about, about getting the best performance out of electronics. Um, in 1955, he did a track called Dripsody, which is based on purely the sound of a drip of water multiplied through various tape manipulations once again. And here it is, it's from 1955, there's a track called Dripsody. piece there by Hewler Kane from 1955, Dripsody. Um, quite amazing what you can get with um, a simple sound once it's manipulated. And this really, this is the freedom of the time, the, the fact that anything could become music. And there's the whole idea of all these studios and all the experiments that were going on. Um, back in the US, Vladimir Ozachevsky who had started the the, stu the Columbia Princeton University studio with Otto Luning, was asked to create a piece of wireless code signals recorded from the Historical Wireless Museum in New Jersey. And this is the, the piece that resulted. It's called Wireless Fantasy. And it records within it a recording of Wagner's Parsifal, which is apparently the first ever music to be broadcast over the radio waves by Lee de Forest. And it's interesting because in this, the the classical takes a back seat and the electronics are more important. So it's quite a, a turning point in, in that sense. Um, this is by Vladimir Ozachevsky from 1960, Wireless Fantasy. Bye. 
an extract from Wireless Fantasy by Vladimir Zuchevsky from 1958. Sorry, it's not from 1958, it's actually from 1960. The next piece I'm going to play is from 1958, and it's by Edgar Varese. Although he came up with a lot of the ideas of using new sounds, it wasn't until the late 50s that he really got a chance to properly do a piece of uh, fully tape music. And it was a piece that was especially commissioned by by the Philips Corporation to play at the 1958 World's Fair at their special pavilion that was dev- designed by architect Le Corbusier. And I'll read a little quote from Vrazy who describes it. It consisted of moving coloured lights, images projected on the walls of the pavilion and music. The music was distributed by 425 loudspeakers. There were 20 amplifier combinations. It was recorded on a three-track magnetic tape that could be varied in intensity and quality. The loudspeakers were mounted in groups and in what is called sound routes to achieve various effects, such as that of the music running around the pavilion, as well as coming from different directions, reverberations, etc. For the first time, I heard my music literally projected in space. And now you can hear it projected into your headphones, because this is Poem Electronique by Edgard Varese. Thank you. 
and extract from Poem Electronique by Edgar Varese, his only fully electronic piece. He did do some stuff early electronic stuff as part of his Deserts Concerto, but only part of that was electronic. Around about this time, the late 50s, there were sort of two schools of thought emerging, really. There was people that relied completely on tape and completely on found sound, and those that used a lot more electronics, or, or maybe wanted to move completely into electronics because synthesised technology was was advancing quite rapidly at this time. And the next piece I'm going to play was basically a a demo piece for two synthesisers built by Raymond Scott's company, Manhattan Research. There was the the Clavivox, which was patented in 1956 and included a sub-assembly constructed by a young colleague, Robert, Robert Moog, who says about it, a lot of the sound-producing circuitry of the Clavivox resembles very closely the first analogue synthesizer my company made. Um, and there's also the Electronium built by Manhattan Research also. This is a demo piece by the founder, the founder of Manhattan Research, by Raymond Scott. And this is Cindy Electronium, and it's very different to anything else that I've played today, but it's so excellent I just had to play it. Thank you. 
Cindy Electronium there by Raymond Scott from 1959. At around about this time, back in the Cologne studio, sorry I'm, I'm jumping through continents here, but I'm trying to keep it in some sort of chronological order rather than a continental order. Um, in about 1960, Karl-Heinz um, Stockhausen was one of the main people working at the Cologne studio and he'd drifted away from serialism by this time and developed what he called moment form, where each moment stands on its own without any overall reference to a structure. So there's no real beginning, no middle, no end. And with that in mind, he, he created this piece called Contact, which exists in two versions. There's one tape only, and there's another for tape and a piano and percussionist. And in this case, I'm going to play you an extract from the second version, now this features piano and percussion by David Tudor, who himself is a big noise in the, the 60s electronica movement, and percussionist Christoph Kaskel. This is part of Stockhausen's Contact from 1960.
An extract from Contact by Karl Heinz Stockhausen from 1960. Um, Stockhausen was the main, one of the main experimenters at the Cologne studio and he did lo- loads of crazy things like recording things in completely different ways that had never been done before. For instance, he invented a, a rotating table that he put four loudspeakers around and then on the middle of the table put a microphone and turned it around. So playing sounds out of the loudspeakers and then recording them back into a mic onto a different tape. So he's doing lots of interesting experiments like that. After a little bit more continent hopping, we're back in the United States and particularly we're at the Columbia Princeton University Studios again in which um, Milton Babbitt has managed to persuade RCA to give him their half a million dollar synthesizer and I'll let him tell part of the story. The, the idea of this machine was absolutely perfect for me because you were punching in every aspect of the musical event the mode of succession from that event to the next event. But the question is what to do with this elaborate, clumsy, and hopelessly expensive machinery. So RCA finally said, look, we know you can't afford the machine, probably no university can, for a nominal fee, and a very nominal fee, they transported the whole thing to 125th Street Studio. And then Peter Mose went to work with a bunch of young engineers financed by the Rockefeller Foundation. The first thing was how to transfer everything to tape multiple tape track. We got the first four-track Ampex half-inch tape that was ever made and the machine. And he simply did it with, you know, with every kind of electronic device so that we could coordinate. We could go from machine to tape, go from tape back to machine, because you could play through this machine too. I mean, although you, you obviously produced on the machine, you could use it entirely as a processor. You could go in, there was a way of entering it with any signal you wanted to and process the signal internally within the machine, which I did in Philomel. And this is the the piece he was talking about there. This is Philomel by Milton Babbitt from 1964. Fear 
vermilion. Filaments fear the tearing, the failing trees. from Philomel there by Milton Babbitt from 1964 made using the RCA Mark II electronic music synthesizer um, I believe it's the only one ever built it was too expensive and they couldn't sell it as you heard there um, and it also featured the vocal talents of soprano Bethany Beardsley I'm going to finish today's show with a, a bit more continent hopping and a piece of music from a studio in Japan that that started in the late 50s and early 60s and it's based around the Japanese Broadcasting Corporation, NHK and I'll read you a little quote by the composer which is Yoji Yuasa I try to compose throughout with bent sounds including portamenti and sound forms which have the shape of glissandi I'm strongly attracted to the fact that intervallic and timbral conditions are metamorphosed by the plasticity of time when it is changed continuously through tape speed alteration. Very much theory-based movement in this early electronic music. And people especially pushing sounds into to ways they've, they've not been used before. This is Projection SM Plastic for White Noise from 1964.
an extract from Projection M as M Projection as M Plastic for White Noise from 1964 by Joji Uasa. I'm afraid I pronounced it wrong earlier on, sorry about that. So I think from this part you've got the idea of a, a new type of music emerging based specifically on electronics, but a lot to do with tapes as well, and using any sounds to create music. And this leads directly into any modern electronic music as well. And it's very important to, to realise that. So that's the end of the show. Um, as usual, I'm going to finish by giving you my email. This is shekel at hotmail.com. Um, email with any comments, um, etc. Also, I'm going to end with a, a slight appeal as well, because um, I'm quite broke at the moment, and this, this does cost money to, to get hold of this music. So if anyone has a PayPal account, um, please feel free to donate any amount, no matter how small. Um, just using that email, I've just given you shekel, S-H-E-E-K-L, at hotmail.com. In part five, I'm going to be continuing the idea of experimental computer music through the 60s into the early 70s, but including a special section on the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. But that's the end of part four, and... Goodbye and good night. Give me something to dance to.